Open up your Bibles. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Welcome to prayer week 2024, the 24th consecutive year where we set aside seven full days and we actually take Jesus completely at his word in John 15 when he says, apart from me, you can't do anything. Do you know what the posture of a group of people who believes that is? Prayer. If we actually believe we are desperately dependent on God, then we will cultivate this life that we call prayer, that today we're going to look at, we're going to take a step back today, and we're going to just try to get an overview of a life that Jesus taught and modeled that wasn't just for him, but something he said, this is for all people who choose to follow him. Here's how 1 John 2 summarizes it, kind of a one-sentence summary kind of commissioning us into prayer week 24. It's this, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. What a sentence. So if you're claiming to live in Jesus in 2024, here's what Jesus say: you got to walk as he walked. Chad Bohai is a pastor out in California. He summarized it this way. I put this quote in your notes. By the way, those of you joining online, your online host should get you note sheets. Those of you who pull out your note sheets now, Bohai said it this way, Jesus reveals God's image to humanity, this is who God is, that's Advent season, and God's intention for humanity. This is what a human connected to and empowered by God looks like. You see that image and intention. See, when you become a Christian, it kind of settles the question, who do you look for to guide and direct and model your life after? When you become a Christian, you enter Jesus' school of living with an open heart and open hands, and you say, Jesus, teach me how to live. You are the ultimate example and model for what it means to flourish as a human in this world. It's Jesus. He's the one we look to. He's our guide. He's our image, and he's in our intention. And I I came across this week a commentary from a pastor who kind of summarized it this way. It's interesting when you reflect on it. Think of it this way. It said, evangelicals... We want to be discipled by Jesus and his theology. Pentecostals want to be discipled by Jesus and his signs and wonders. Activists want to be discipled by Jesus and his heart for the poor and the marginalized. House church people, they want to be discipled by Jesus and how he did small groups and community life. But all of these actions and ministries of Jesus, they all are rooted in this life of prayer. It all comes from a soil, like all of Jesus' ministry grows and flourishes from this soil of prayer. His teachings, his healings, his miracles, his discipleship, his sacrificial work, it all flows from this interactive communion and connection with his Father. And this is why the disciples, when they were around him, they were paying attention to Jesus praying in this prayerful life, and they came to him and said, Jesus We hear you, we see you interacting with the Father like that. Jesus, we want that too. They said to him in Luke 11, Jesus, teach us. Teach us to preach? No. Teach us to care for the poor? No. Teach us to lead? No. Teach us to drive out demons? No. No. What did they say? Teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the prayer life of Jesus, just kind of do a little overview of the prayer life of Jesus, then we're going to talk about what is, what's the fuel to step into that kind of life, and then we're going to end today with a prayer that I guarantee God's going to answer. All right? So an overview of the life of Jesus. Now, 
Hang with me here. I know you were up way too late last night, so stay with me. We're going to get into this. Several scriptures, I promise, will come up for air in a few minutes. So take your breath right now, and we're going to go a little bit of a deep dive, and then we'll come up for air. But I'm just going to trace a thread that I want you to see through your New Testament on the life that Jesus taught and modeled. And remember what John said, if you're going to claim to be a follower of Jesus, you're going to walk as he walked. You're going to live the life he lived. So let's pay attention now to what this life of prayer looks like in Jesus' life. We know very little about Jesus' first 30 years. What we do know is in a little window when he was around 12, he, his parents lost track of him, Mary and Joseph, you know, and he says he's in the Father's house, he's in the temple courts, he's dialoguing with the religious leaders, he's having this interaction with the scholars and leaders, and he's clearly connected to his spiritual heavenly father. That's what we know about his early years, but it becomes like visible and it becomes more manifest starting at his baptism in Luke 3. This is what it says, Luke 3, verse 21. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, underline that in your Bibles, as he was praying, heaven was open, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. Do you see the connection there, church? Do you see it? As he's praying, heaven opens, spirit descends, and a voice of affirmation speaks. And notice the connection. We long for a voice of affirmation, but we have to be in conversation to receive affirmation. If there's no voice, if you're struggling to receive a voice of of affirmation from the Father, the breakdown might become we're not in regular conversation with Him. The context of conversation brings the affirmation modeled by Jesus at his baptism. And then Mark 1 says he's praying early in the morning. Mark 1.35, very early in the morning, while it's still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Now, geographically, he's in Capernaum here. Capernaum is known as the hometown of Jesus. Say, why? Because that's where Peter, Andrew, James, and John, that was their hometown. That's where Jesus spent a lot of his time and his ministry, especially at Peter's house. A lot of his work was inaugurated there, and so they called it the hometown of Jesus. I got to visit Capernaum in 2017 during my sabbatical that year, and here's a picture of me in Capernaum standing at what I thought might be the solitary place that Jesus might have gone to, because that's the picture where I'm standing by the water that's just on the outskirts of Capernaum. So he would have been at Peter's house in the town, and then he would have withdrawn to a quiet place, most likely a space like that, right on the Sea of Galilee, because it's a little fishing village on the Sea of Galilee. That's why Peter, Andrew, James, and John, that's where they're home, because they're all fishermen. And so here's Jesus, the night before in Capernaum, he's doing what he does a lot in Capernaum, which is ministering to people. There's a lot going on, healings, there's a lot happening. If you look at the verses just above in Mark 1, he's up late night healings, and what does it say he's doing early in the morning while it's still dark? What's he do? He gets up and prays. That tells you what? He didn't get a lot of sleep. He chose something more important than rest that night, communion with the Father. So at his baptism, early in the morning, and then look at Luke 5, 16. I put these in your notes, but it's often now. But Jesus' circle often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Now, what we do is when we get overwhelmed, when we get fatigued, when we just get maxed out on the schedule, I know for me, sometimes I just look to R&R. I just look to rest and relaxation. Nothing wrong with R&R. 
But what I want us to see here is Jesus goes beyond R&R to refuge with the Father. There's a difference, right? Enjoy some R&R, but as a follower of Jesus, we got to get to the place in the language of Psalm 46 that's like this. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in time of need. We've got to get to the secret place, to get to the refuge, to get the rest and replenishment and strength that we need. That's what Jesus is saying. Often. How often do he do it? A lot. Because he recognized what he needed. Way beyond R&R, it's refuge with the Father. So at his baptism, early in the morning, often, keep going, Lord's Prayer, right? Here it is, the daily rhythm of the Lord's Prayer. This is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's the next line? Give us today our daily bread. There's your rhythm. And then at night, Matthew 14. Now, this is the scene where Jesus sends the disciples across the Sea of Galilee and says, hey, I'll join you later. Now, that's convenient when you know you can walk on water, but it would be confusing to them, right? But that's, this is the scene where later on he joins them on the water. They probably thought he was going to get his own little boat and, you know, row out to them. Instead, he just strolls out on the water, and that was a whole different scene. But the point is, while he sends them ahead, why is he sending them ahead there? Well, look what it says in Mark or Matthew 14. After he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to what? To pray. When evening came, he was there alone. He needed some quiet space to commune with his father at night. And then Luke 6 says, before big decisions, one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. He spent the night praying to God. Notice, spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them who he designated apostles. Now, would you agree with me that the choosing of the 12 would be in the category of a big decision? That was a really important moment in his ministry moving forward, a moment that required a little more than 15-minute devotional in the morning, perhaps even a little more than an hour in the prayer room. This required Jesus to get through the night in prayer, all night praying. Now, parentheses here. Some of you are facing some decisions in 2024 that candidly, Jesus is modeling something for you here that you're going to need to press beyond a few minutes getting in the word and praying before you rush off to your day or a few minutes right before you fall asleep. Those are good, important, but there's sometimes you're facing crossroads in life that it's going to require multi-hour type prayer and attention to him. This is what Jesus is modeling here. Before big decisions, we need to seek God to have a heart for him, to listen to his voice. He's praying at the tomb of Lazarus. Look at John 11. This is fascinating here. Check this out. As he's praying at the tomb of Lazarus, now Lazarus has died and he's buried and, he, and Jesus raised him, but he's praying right before he's raising him here. Look at this. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up, said to the father, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. Check this out. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. Church, did you see this? Jesus is praying out loud for the sake of everyone to hear and get a window into the kind of communion and authority and relationship that he has with the Father. He's trying to say, hey, Father, I'm going to pray out loud here because I want to give all these people listening a window into what I have they can have. How cool is that? He's like, hey, Lord, I'm just going to vocalize what you and I already have going so everybody else can get in on it. Say, you want that too? You can have that too. 
So he's daily rhythm, Lord's Prayer at night, before big decisions, at the tomb. Notice here, Luke 22. He's praying for Peter's struggling faith. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But what? But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. He says to Peter, basically, hey, Peter, it's going to get really hard. You're going to fall on your face in failure, but here's how you know failure's not going to get the last word. My intercession for you. It's not going to get the last word. Some of you are rolling into 2024 dragging a whole lot of guilt, shame, and regret from 23 or 22 or 21, whatever. You're just dragging all the stuff from the previous years into 24. And here's what I want you to get a picture of with Jesus here. If you'll open up that stuff to Jesus and invite him into it, here's what you'll find. You'll find what Peter found. Jesus will step in, intercede for you in a way that, listen, failure's not going to get the last word. It can be a new day, a new day, and a new beginning, just like Peter found. He can redeem it for something more glorious because he's interceding for us. No better intercessor than the Son of God for us in those ways, as Peter found. Now, look at John 17. He's praying at the Last Supper. So it's the final meal before he's sent out to be executed. This is his high priestly prayer, as it's often referred In John 17, Jesus said this. He looked up toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. That word time there is kairos. You've heard us talk about it here before, right? Kairos is the God-appointed time. Kronos is our time, chronological. So sometimes Kronos and Kairos, they aren't aligned. Often they're not aligned. And Jesus says, hey, I know I didn't come when you thought I was going to come or the way you thought, but I'm now the Father's time. The Kairos moment has come. I have brought you glory, he says to the Father on earth, by completing the work you gave me to do. So he's praying at the Last Supper, I'm completing the work, the time has come. And then he goes out into the garden, and in the garden, in Matthew 26, Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. He says to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he's praying there, this is the classic line that you've heard often, says, Father, not my will, but your be done. That's in the garden, so at the Last Supper, in the garden. And then from the cross, what does he say on the cross? Luke 23, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then if all that isn't enough, how about Hebrews 7? I entitled this one, His Ongoing Eternal Occupation. Check this out. Here's what the author of Hebrews says, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, He is able to save completely those who come to God through him because, underline this, he always lives to intercede for them. Wow. So sometimes in my prayers, I'll ask the Lord, say, Jesus, what prayers are you praying over my life today? Or as I'm praying for someone else, Jesus, what are you praying over Kendra today? What are you praying over Lily and Kaylin today? What are you praying over Eagle Church today? Lord, what's on your heart today? Because your word says you are interceding. It's your like eternal ongoing occupation to intercede and to cry out. And I find it helpful if I can kind of get aligned to what are the things that Jesus is praying over my life and over these situations and circumstances, and that helps align. So So just check it out. Like, if you just glance, did you just glance through that list? Like, at his baptism, he's praying, and then it's early in the morning, and then late at night, and then he's got this daily rhythm, and then it's at Lazarus's tomb, and then it's at the cross, and it's in the garden. Like, you, it's not an overstatement, church, to make this, it's not an overstatement to say this, 
that literally Jesus' life, everything that flowed out of Jesus' life, all his miracles, all his healings, all his teachings, everything that we worship him for all that he has accomplished for us, it all begins and flourishes and grows from a base of a life of prayer. I don't think that's an overstatement. I think Jesus models something for us that says, for, for us, prayer, for Jesus, prayer isn't like a thing, prayer is the thing. Like he's, he's showing us something, like sometimes as a Christian we can think, you know what, when I can kind of get, get my life sorted out a little bit and get some things straightened out, I'll kind of build a side hustle of prayer. That's not the Christian life. Jesus models a life that says, if you're in relationship with God, prayer moves from a thing to the thing. To build a relationship with God equals to build a life of prayer. They're one and the same. To say that you're in relationship with God and to say that you're really not into prayer, that, that's like saying it's a flaming snowflake. It doesn't work. That's not how it works. So, to, so here's, so step back now and just look at this life that Jesus taught and modeled. And John says, if we're going to claim to follow Jesus, then we're going to live as he lived. He's our ultimate example. Here's what it means to flourish in this life. And we're going to be a people of prayer. It's baseline. This isn't like for the super spiritual. It's not something you relegate to the prayer team, to the elders, the pastors, or the people around you. Oh, they're really into prayer. No, this is baseline. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are going to learn and grow and develop and build a life of prayer. It's where everything else flows from. All right. Come up for air now. Take a breath. Okay. Good job. Good job. You stay with me. Come up for air. So, a couple of weeks ago, I heard a commentator, a really cultural commentator I respect, a pastor down in Sydney, Australia. His name's Mark Sayers. He's a really good cultural thinker. He's a pastor. He's in the trenches. And um, he made some comments about an era that he thinks is going to go down in Mark, 2015 to 2023. He thinks it's going to go down and be marked as an era of anxiety. Think about that, what we've all lived through in the last... Thinks an era of anxiety. But he's, his sense is something is shifting in 2024. He thinks 2024 is inaugurating a new era, and it's to be determined what the end date might be. But from 2024 to some period in the future, he thinks we're shifting from an era of anxiety to an era of anger. Do you feel it? Do you feel it in the air? I had a business leader say to me this week, he had been shouted at in his business context more this week than he had in a long time. And it was just week one of 2024. I thought, yeah, that's it right there. Like, just the era, just this, this atmosphere, this air of kind of cultural anger that just gets internalized. And church, when you look ahead at kind of where 2024, the trajectory of 2024, I don't think we're going to look back on this year and say, you know, this was a really kind of relaxed and casual kind of year. Uh, I think we need to be wise, eyes open. I think this year is going to be really intense on a lot of fronts. And I think we're going to need a reservoir of a refuge with the Lord 
to flourish, not just gut out and survive 24, but if we're going to actually live and flourish and, and do a kind of life that Jesus, I think we're going to need a reservoir that's got to go deep into the refuge of the Lord. I don't think this is a time to be casual at all. I think Jesus is sifting out lukewarmness sometimes by the cultural realities we're in. You are not going to be able to make it lukewarm in 2024 is some of the realities. You're going to get sifted out. That we're going to need something. That's why this this life of prayer, we're going to have to learn how to take some steps forward in being a praying people and a praying church if we're going to flourish in an era that's going to be marked with anxiety and now anger. To say, well, Jesus has a different vision for what it means to be alive in this world. It's a different vision for what it means to flourish, and it's based on a life of prayer, that we can actually have his promises pressed deeper into our hearts, that we can have a confidence not in the arm of the flesh, but a confidence in the strength and power of God, that we can have a peace that anchors our soul when there's all this chaos swirling around us, that we can have a mind who thinks God's thoughts and who's set on things above when the dailiness of here and now presses strong. All of that and more comes through a life of prayer. And now we know why Jesus would say something like when he summarizes what his house is to be. He says, my house is to be a house of prayer for the nations. So I imagine now you're thinking, okay, 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 Eric. Okay, I hear you, but I can't do it. It's just too much. It's too overwhelming. When I try to pray, it's just, I get distracted. I get off track. I don't like it very much. I find it kind of boring. I don't I hear, I see that Jesus teaches and models it, but maybe you kind of overemphasize where you're like, well, Jesus is the son of God. Like he didn't really have a choice, you might think. But remember, he's fully human and fully divine. So in his humanity, right, he models something for us about what it means to flourish as a human in this world. And so if you kind of are in this space where you're just like, yeah, it's just, you're too overwhelmed by it. Or you think there's just no way you can actually develop, like you've kind of resigned yourself to never be a person of prayer. One of my goals this morning is to stir up by the Holy Spirit a fresh vision and passion that the life Jesus taught and modeled for his communion and intimacy with the Father wasn't just for him, it's for all of us. And I want to stir up a fresh vision that says, if Jesus had that, we can have that too. And then I want to encourage us to not just like we get inspired maybe by what Jesus did in the Spirit. Hear this now. We can't be inspired by what Jesus did in the Spirit and then live it out in the flesh. I don't want you to hear this morning's exhortation and then just jump into willpower and resolve alone. Willpower is not going to cut it. Willpower might get you through prayer week, but that's about it. But you've got to need something deeper than resolve and willpower alone. I've learned through the years when I preach on prayer, I generally am giving many the gift of discouragement. So I understand that. I'm not trying to discourage you. I'm with you in this. Rarely have I met someone, there are a few that I've met along the way, that are just so satisfied with how their life of prayer is flourishing. Yes, rejoice in that. But for the vast majority of followers of Jesus, we all look at our prayer life and we long for it to be stronger and deeper and more intimate and all those things. Yes. And so it tends to be very discouraging sometimes when we get a charge into prayer week to say, it's time to take another step forward in our life of prayer. 
And for 24 years, you've been hearing this around here. And however long God has me charging you before the beginning of prayer week, you're going to be hearing it for years and years to come. Because a life with God is a life of prayer. I actually believe what Jesus said. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Which means one of the greatest gifts I can give you as a pastor is to call you to develop a life of prayer. Wherever you are, you start right where you are and you work at the pace of grace. But the idea that you're not going to be a praying man, a praying woman, a praying student, a praying child, that, that's got to be gone. If you're going to follow Jesus, the life he teaches and models is you will be a praying person. Which then moves us to the second area I want to look at for a few minutes. Okay, then what's the fuel for this kind of a life? Because we may get a little inspired now by what Jesus taught and modeled, may get stirred up by the Spirit here. We don't want to work in the flesh. We don't want to get willpower and resolve alone. No, here's the picture. Romans 8, right, the fuel for this kind of a praying life. Look at Romans 8. I put it in your notes. Paul said it this way. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. If you're entering into this new year feeling in a place of weakness in some area of your life, Maybe you've got some stuff going on in relationships, it feels really weak in there. Maybe you've got some stuff going on with sin and temptation, it feels really weak in there. Maybe you've got some stuff as you look at your own prayer life, maybe you feel like your prayer life's just really weak. Hear this, here's what Paul says, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. Are you kidding me? With groans that words cannot express. So hear this, the starting point for the praying life in the way of Jesus, here's the starting point. I don't know how to pray like Jesus. Holy Spirit, help me. Teach me to pray. There's the starting point. For some of you, that's your like, there's your prayer for prayer week 2024. That you just step into this prayer week and say, Jesus, I'm getting a window, I'm getting a vision for a life of prayer that I'm not currently experiencing. So I don't know how to pray like that. Holy Spirit, would you help me, and would you teach me how to pray like that? Which moves into the third area for this morning. That's a prayer, church. I promise, I guarantee God's going to answer. Here's the prayer. Luke 11. One day when Jesus is praying in a certain place, when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Right there. There's a... If we pray that, I promise you all of heaven is leaning over the rails to answer that prayer. I promise you Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are deploying the full resources at their disposal to grow and mature you and me and us to be a praying person and a praying church. I promise you that. And so let's pray that. Let's start there. Say, Lord... I don't know how to do this. I need your help to do this. It willpower and resolve aren't going to do it alone, so I need you to step in. And that's the fuel. Do you see that, church? So we get a vision for this praying life, and then we lean into a fuel that's beyond ourselves, that the gift of the Holy Spirit is Christ in us, Christ through us, Christ for us, that begin to move into this praying life from this posture of, Lord, teach me to pray. And so I want to get real practical here. I want to get real practical here for a couple of minutes. I put some things in your notes on this. I want you to get your phones out and download an app now. I want you to download the pause app, okay? So go ahead and do that right now. Some of you have already been on your phones making your grocery list and figuring out where you're going to go to lunch. Come on back. Download the pause app. Here's what it looks like. 
on the Pause app. It's put together by John Eldridge. It's outstanding. The group that went to Passion last year, I was able to be a part of it, and several of us did some Pause app exercises. The post-Passion 2023 experience was. So they've structured some guided prayer exercises starting as one minute, three minute, five minute, ten minute. And so you start where you are and you work at the pace of grace. For some of you, just start with a one minute pause in your day to pray and seek God. For others, it'd be three minutes, five minutes, ten minutes. But get the pause app going. Get a rhythm somewhere in your day where you're actually pausing beyond R&R. You're not just looking for some kind of rest and relaxation. You're looking for refuge in the Lord. You're looking to go where Jesus went to get a strength and power beyond ourselves. So let that app help you. And then internalize some of the psalms. I put seven psalms. You know, Jesus would have learned how to pray primarily through the book of Psalms. So nothing has guided and shaped my prayer life more than the 150 psalms. Because a pastor like 29 years ago sat down with me and said, Eric, one of the things you're going to learn as a pastor is you're going to need to be a man of prayer. And you need to be taught how to pray. You just like wake up one day and figure out how to pray. He says, the, the Psalms, through the power of the Holy Spirit, will teach you how to pray. And so for the last 29 years, I've been primarily praying the Psalms. I started with these seven, seven Psalms like this. I picked seven that are kind of easier onboarding or runway type Psalms. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. If you've never prayed the Psalms, take these seven, put them across the seven days of the week. Commit for the next year to pray those seven psalms across those seven days for the next 51 weeks. It doesn't matter what order you put them in. Pick whatever, what's going on in your week. I think you'll, you'll figure out which day needs which psalm. But let's say every Monday you prayed Psalm 1. Here's what I think you'll find, church. If you do this, if you just pray Psalm 1, say, well, how do you do that? Just pray it out loud, quietly slowly, kind of reflectively, pausing at different points. And sometimes you're just going to pray the words of the psalm. You don't have anything else to say. That's fine. Other times it's going to spark some conversation with God that you feel like God's prompting you to pray into something. Here's what you'll find. Over the course of the year, you will have memorized a good chunk of those seven psalms. Not because you sat down to memorize them, but because, hear this, you've internalized them into your soul in an environment of prayer. I find some things more effective than memorizing Scripture. I find internalizing God's Word in an environment of prayer is even more fruitful. I have way more of the sections of God's Word lodged in my heart and mind through praying and internalizing than trying to sit down and memorize. And so wouldn't that be something over this year? Like if we just took seven Psalms and we just prayed those that way? I think it'd be... Who knows what God might do with your prayer life in that? So this is where Jesus would have learned to pray. This is where all the young Hebrew children learned to pray. And then we've got prayer week going on that you've already heard about. We've got prayer room signups going on. We've got evening prayer gatherings happening Monday through Friday night this week, 7 to 8 each night. There's another way you can step in and work the muscles of prayer. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to start right where you are, and I want you to just turn the dial of your life up one degree somewhere this week. That's what I want you to do. So, if you're, just, if you're like five minutes, Pastor, all I'm is, if you're five minutes in the morning is all you've been doing, is all you've got, and being quiet and still and in the Word and praying, good, just turn the dial up, maybe go ten minutes, just turn up one notch, ten minutes. 
or if it's one minute, three minutes. Wherever you are, turn it up. If you've never spent an hour in the prayer room ever, I'm asking you to turn the dial up one, one hour in the prayer room this week. Give it a try. No one's ever said to me in 24 years we've been doing this, that was a terrible decision, Pastor Eric. I wish I would have never done that. No one's ever said that to me an hour in the prayer room. If, it, if that was you, you never told me that. But most of the people say it's usually very meaningful, very fruitful, restful, it's refuge. That God just meets you there. And most people say, well, that hour went much faster than I ever imagined an hour could go. That's most of the commentary here about the prayer room. If you're a regular in the prayer room, I'm asking you to turn the dial up a little bit this year. I'll add a little bit more. If, it's, if you're a one or two hour, make it a three or four hour. Spread them across the week. Just turn it up. If you've never come to an evening worship and prayer gathering, I'm asking you, turn the dial up. One, Come at least one night this week. We're going to pray through the four pillars of Eagle Church. Presence, formation, missions, generation. Every night, a different theme. And then we're going to have communion on Friday night. So there you go. Presence, formation, missions, generation. Which, by the way, everything we're going to be doing in formation and missions and generations, it all is finding its roots from this base of what we're doing, praying for the manifest presence of the Lord to come and power and display himself. It all flows out of that. And so that's why we're doing what we're doing. So all of the pillars of the church are really built and based, makes sense, right, from what Jesus taught and modeled from this life of prayer. If you've been a regular coming out to the prayer gatherings, why don't you turn the dial up, come multiple nights this week. Just wherever you're at, at the pace of grace, turn the dial one notch and see what God does with it and see if he meets you there. Okay, worship team, come on up. Come on up. I got one final illustration and then we're going to go to communion. So John Owen lived in the 1600s in England. He was one of the most well-known theologians and pastors and writers in the 1600s in England. Here's a picture of Owen. I think I have a picture. Yeah. He's a spiritual giant of his time. He buried 10 of his 11 children. I'm going to say that again. He buried 10 of his 11 children. And he buried his wife. Now, when I was reading some of the background of his life, I thought, Lord, what make a guy like that tick? Like, how, what was going on inside of him that he could sustain and flourish and not just cave under the weight of that degree of suffering in his life? And I remember what John Piper said early on in my ministry. I was at a setting where Piper was talking, and Piper challenged all of us young pastors. He said, hey, all you young pastors, find some spiritual heroes. Just make sure they're dead. Pick dead ones. I go, What? He said, pick dead ones because you know how they finished. He said, the jury's still out on all of us, so be careful if you pick a hero that's still alive. Well, I was looking at John Owen's life, and I was like, John Owen, he flourished in the finish. I read, I read this sentence that he wrote near the end of his life, and it gave me a window into what was going on in his soul that could sustain the kind of suffering that he endured and bear the fruit that he bore. Here's what he said. He wrote this near the end of his life. John Owen said, I gave myself to assiduous. Now, assiduous isn't a term we use much today, but it means with great care. It means persistent. To persistent meditation on the scripture and prayer. Hear this. Characterized by frequent visits with the Savior. 
church. There it is. Did you see that? Frequent visits with the Savior. When I read, I said, that's it right there. John Owen, after losing one child, two child, three, four, after he goes through 10 funeral gatherings of his 11 children, after he buries his wife, all the suffering, he's shepherding, he's pastoring, and what's sustaining this guy's life to flourish in the midst of all that pain and chaos and suffering? It was frequent visits with the Savior. It's a life of prayer. And so, church, as we go to the communion table, I'm going to dismiss you to the source and fuel for the praying life. You're going to receive the elements, the broken body and the shed blood. There's the, the energy of the Holy. You're going to take Jesus' life into you. And what I'm getting, the image I want you to have is you're taking in a praying life when you take the elements in. That you lean into His strength. You lean into his heart and his passion. That's going to be the fuel to be a praying church family together. And for you as a praying mom, praying dad, praying student. And then as you come to the table, the scriptures are clear. It's a good time to examine. No better time. First Sunday of the year. We want to start 2024. We want to declare this. Jesus, we have no idea what this year holds, but we knew you hold it. That's what we know. So you reign and you rule over whatever's going to go on this year. And this table represents this place of consecration of our lives to Jesus himself. And so if you've never given your heart to Jesus, in a moment I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that. And you can take communion for the first time. For some of you, you've recently given your heart to Jesus and you're going to take communion for the first time. And then for others of you, you've been walking with him for a long time. And it's good to examine condition and direction. Where am I at? Lord, I'm going to consecrate the whole of my life to you. This year is yours. My life is yours. I'm going to walk with you, live for you, serve you. I want to flourish in 2024. I just want to survive this year. I just want to gut it out. I want to flourish with you, in you, for you, and through you. And church, all that flourishing is going to come from the soil of the, pra- of the praying life. The praying life. Let's pray. Lord, as we go to the tables now, as we hold the elements, we do so as an act of worship. And if there's someone here who's never made a decision, or someone listening online, and you've never made a decision to personally surrender to you, you can just say that right now. Say, Jesus, save me. Forgive me for my sin. I want to live for you. Fill me with your spirit. I believe you died on a cross and rose from the dead. As I take these elements, I do so remembering your great sacrifice. And I take these elements now as an act of worship. Maybe there's some others who, this is your moment, kind of reset. You want to begin the year coming back to the Lord, resetting for all that you want this year to be. Use this as a personal reset moment. Maybe there's some stuff you need to lay down. Maybe there's a bunch of stuff that just needs to be cleansed and washed out of the heart. Maybe there's a bunch of darkness and stuff that needs to get washed away and replaced with the light of his presence. Come and hold the elements. There's your power. There's your hope over whatever it is you're battling. His broken body, his shed blood. And then as we take these elements, Jesus, in just a moment, would you just inaugurate us afresh into the praying life, individually and collectively? Would you teach us what it means to be a praying community, a praying people? 
We love you, we worship you, we trust you. We take these elements now as an act of worship. In Christ's name, amen.